I'm Jessica Watts. You're listening to the 6 o'clock news on WNUR 89.3 FM slash HD1 Evanston, Chicago. It's October 30th. Tonight on WNUR News, the Northwestern Marriage Pact, Halloween Horror, How the Freshmen Are Battling the Winter Weather, and the B-List. Those stories coming up tonight on WNUR News at 6. Thanks for tuning in. Each year, the Northwestern Marriage Pact throws students into a frenzy of filling out a 50-question survey. The incentive is that doing so will provide you with a compatible partner so you can maybe one day tie the knot with. But how valid is the Northwestern Marriage Pact really? Can we rely on it to give us a marriable match? Northwestern's Marriage Pact is here. Every year, that one sentence brings a touch of romantic enthusiasm to Northwestern's campus. Ecom bros, pre-med students, and theater majors alike fill out the 50-question form, giving their answers to prompts like, do you believe in soulmates? And, agree or disagree, I do whatever it takes to get ahead. The incentive is that doing so will result in a compatible partner you can maybe one day tie the knot with. This year, 48% of Northwestern student body filled out the form. But given its popularity, how valid is Northwestern's marriage pact? Most students were notified about Marriage Pact through an email, a group text message, an Instagram post, or even through a free rose stem. All were a part of the Northwestern Marriage Pact marketing team's efforts. The first thing we were told to do was just identify as many connections to groups on campus that we could. So, for instance, like I thought of all my friends who are in different acapella groups, mm-hmm. and I um, like noted them down. So when it came time for the launch on the Monday, the 16th, we were told to get the poster and the link into as many group chats as possible. That was Georgia Mann, a second-year theater major in the School of Communications. Mann and the rest of the marketing team are one branch of the larger Marriage Pact National Project. Each campus has its own vibe and has a way of marketing that would suit that student population best, and so they therefore create teams on each campus so that They aren't just doing like widespread marketing that might not work for one school as well as it would work for the other. Although the advertising and outreach is personalized to the campus, every school uses the same technology. The Marriage Pact website says that pairings are generated using a matching algorithm. But according to Professor Thomas Miller, the faculty director for Northwestern's data science program, Algorithm might not be the most accurate term. It, it, it really doesn't come out of, of economics at all. Uh, it comes more, it's more out of the um, psychometric side. It's more of a survey. Examples of matching algorithms are the processes used to pair medical students with residency programs or sorority pledges to houses. Each side ranks the other, and the algorithm produces matches that hopefully provide the most benefit to everyone. However, there is no ranking involved with the marriage pact. Students don't know their partner's name until after the process is over. Professor Miller explains that students are most likely separated into potential match pools based on their sexual preferences, lifestyle patterns, and overall values. From there, the marriage pact system matches respondents based on highest compatibility levels. In cases where there are multiple potential matches with a similar compatibility level, chances are the solutions are random. You say there are 20 students and you were matched up with those 20 students, then, you know, how do they assign the match? 
then it would just be random. It's flip a coin or flip a 20-sided coin. High compatibility on the marriage path can lead to a lasting relationship. The website states that 3 to 4% of matches lead to a relationship of one year or longer. Weinberg senior Jordan Chekhov and his girlfriend Uma Dachapura have been dating for two and a half years. She's like the nicest, the kindest, most caring person I know. She's really smart. Um, we have a lot of shared interests and we have a lot of fun together. They started out as each other's marriage pack matches in freshman year. In fact, they were the third most compatible match in the pool that year, which Chekhov says lines up with how similar the two are. Um, when we filled it out, there was a question at the end, which was which, like pick three of the questions that are most important to you. And so those we had the same. And I, th- I think for the most part, and like, so I, f- I feel like it showed that like our values were pretty similar in terms of like what was important to us. So compatibility definitely is important. Research shows that couples that are more similar to one another demonstrate higher satisfaction in their relationships. But as Sam Hardy, an associate licensed marriage and family therapist in Chicago says, Initial compatibility can be a great conversation starter, right? It sort of opens the door to the possibility of a flourishing relationship. But the next part of it is equally as important, right? Which is our, you know, the the effort that is put into the relationship, the openness to the possibility of um, the relationship sort of growing over time. Perhaps the Northwestern Marriage Pact will create a one in a million compatibility match. But maybe keep your hopes low on the possibility that your marriage pact match turns into actual marriage. Although... Who's really counting on Marriage Pact to give them their lifelong partner? Marriage Pact is fun. It's flirty. And this year, it was a welcome break from midterms. As Mann says, I mean, I know people who are dating their Marriage Pact from freshman year. I know people who matched with their identical twin. Like, I have heard it all. And whether it's a love story or just a good laugh, like, there's nothing bad that's coming out of it. Like, why not? It spreads joy across the campus, which I'd love to be a part of that. So why not? For WNUR News, I'm Michelle Huang. Moving on to arts and entertainment. As Halloween approaches, horror films reach peak popularity. But what makes something horrifying? What terrifies Northwestern students the most? Alyssa Rubin has the story. As October 31st rolls around, the streets are flooded with costumes and our TVs are filled with images of ghouls, goblins, and ghosts. Halloween's origins comes from the ancient Celtic festival of Samhain, which is a pagan religious celebration that welcomes the harvest at the end of the summer. Now, we have Spirit Halloween, Jack-o'-lanterns, and trick-or-treating. The horror genre and Halloween are naturally intertwined for their scary nature. The genre often includes semantical elements such as isolated spaces, knives, monsters, victims, and blood, in addition to syntactical themes such as survival and external threats, and often have religious and ethical undertones such as purity. But what films scare Northwestern students the most and why? I took to the streets and asked some freshmen their thoughts. From these interviews, I deduced that there are four main categories that people are most terrified by. Gore, jump scares, introspection, and childhood fears.
Can you tell us your name, the scariest movie you've ever seen, and why did it scare you? My name's Angelina, and I mean, I'd say it's just like super gory, and I was like kind of disturbed the entire time, but like House of a Thousand Corpses. Okay, I'm Anais Tool. The scariest movie I've ever seen was probably the first Saw, because I was not expecting to watch a horror movie, and then it was just like very gory, and I, it was terrifying. My name's James, and uh, I like can't stand watching horror movies but my favorite like horror movie i've ever seen is alien probably just because it's you know it's creepy and like he looks scary gore is an indication of danger it signifies something powerful enough to open up our bodies and painfully end our lives literally not only does it conjure fear but disgust and even nausea or a drop in heart rate or blood pressure gore summons something viscerally distressing in most people there's even a term for the fear of blood, hemophobia. Gore is a somatic staple of horror, but specifically the subgenres of splatter and slasher films. The second category is jump scare. I'm Levi Gillis. The scariest movie I've ever seen was uh, Sinister uh, because it has like 10 jump scares in it and I was literally cowering in the couch while my friend laughed at me. The scariest horror movie I've seen is It. Uh, I think that the way that they set up the jump scares is really, really, really scary. And I remember the first time I saw it with my friends, I was horrified. I hate horror movies, but I watched A Quiet Place, and it was scary because there were many jump scares. And I'm Anna. A jump scare is a scene in a movie that shocks you so abruptly that you flinch or jump out of your seat. Think of Freddy Krueger's most terrifying moments in Nightmare on Elm Street or the Red Demon in Insidious. Jump scares are terrifying because they cue you to get anxious. The music builds slowly, the tension rises, and then bam, the music spikes and something horrifying pops out of nowhere. Jump scares represent the fear of the unknown. You are being watched, but you're unaware. You are in danger, but you don't know it until it's too late. While gore and jump scares are more semantic horror elements, the last two genres are syntactical and concentrate on thematic ideas. Dylan Nischelsky and us, because I think yourself can be the scariest thing that you can think of. My name is Grace Demarest, and the scariest horror film I've ever seen is Us. I think just because they did everything right and it still wasn't enough. Um, and that, that prospect terrifies me. My name is Sequina King. Uh, I guess the scariest movie I've seen is Get Out, only because I'm like from a really like uh, conservative town, and so like when the protagonist was captured by the white people, and then they're gonna do the surgery, it kind of like scared me. I was like, oh, this is why you shouldn't go to like a stranger's house, like or somebody you don't really know. Introspection is the investigation of one's own emotional, mental, and spiritual state. Often, horror movies will force their audience to examine their behavior and the society in which they live through thematic analysis of human nature and self. This type of introspection can be frightening because we see ourselves or our situation in characters whose situations are being exploited, which can be a terrifying experience. The last category is childhood fears. 
Hi, I'm Shreya, and the scariest movie I've ever seen is Coraline. I don't know why they call that a kid's movie. Like, the button eyes haunted me as a child and haunt me to this day. Hi, my name is Sunny, and the scariest movie I've ever seen is Coraline. And that's because I watched it as a child and couldn't even get through it and still had nightmares about it for the next year. My name is Brody, and the scariest horror movie I've ever seen is probably It or the It franchise. Just clowns just chill me to the core, and I cannot handle it. So th those films would be probably the scariest thing I've ever seen. City. Childhood fears include movies targeted at kids or youthful items such as clowns or dolls. This classification focuses on the idea of creepiness. While gore and jump scares are a more visceral reaction, childhood fears often muster a more uncomfortable, eerie feeling. Dolls and clowns are intended for kids, yet are some of the most common fears that transition into adulthood. This is due to a lack of emotional understanding from them, as they are not quite human, yet replicate some of the elements of humanity. Their faces are reminiscent, yet certain components are not quite right, meaning we can't read them from our emotions or potential threats, which can be deeply unsettling and creepy. As you get ready this year for October 31st, try watching a horror movie or two. See what scares you and figure out why. From WNUR News, this is Alyssa Rubin. Happy Halloween. And now, time for oddities. Chilly temperatures have hit Evanston as October nears its end. Rachel Spears found out how the freshmen are adjusting to such a sudden change. Hollow weekend certainly brought the chills this year. Temperatures dropped from the 70s to the 40s in a matter of hours, and a cold rain pelted students who were out and about. For some at Northwestern, this type of weather is relatively normal, but for others, the drastic changes in cooler temperatures can come as a shock to the system. Chicago, Evanston's big city neighbor to the south, is also known as the Windy City, and located on the shores of Lake Michigan, Northwestern is known for its bleak winters. Despite the fact that fall has just begun and colder weather is probably still in the future, some students are already dressed for the worse. I went out into campus and asked students about the changing weather and how they are or aren't adjusting. Medill freshman Jack Ferveris lived in Florida, Alabama, and Tennessee before coming to NU. He jokingly, or maybe not so jokingly, weighed in on the changing seasons as he begins his first Evanston winter. I've never really had a winter like this before. It's a, it's a transition, y'all, but I think that it's it's something I'll live through and hopefully not die of frostbite. While frostbite isn't something that most Evanston residents are thinking about right now, other students from warmer climate areas have also expressed concerns about it getting colder. And I feel like the weather in Chicago is very, very cold. And I fear that it's going to get colder than this because I've never experienced snow before. Said Daphne Tungabinde. Freshman Amelia Stone explained how the cooler, gloomier weather has been affecting her overall mood and motivation. But when it does rain and get windy, which it started to recently, it makes me a little sad and it makes me a little cold and like I want to stay inside, but overall I don't mind it too much. Well, I think the weather has been kind of weird because some days have been super cold and some others super warmed. 
And because I was living in a country that is cold, I'm kind of used to, but I guess that people that come from tropical countries have been having a hard time adjusting. Luca Inchron is still staying optimistic about the weather. While it's cooler here than Germany and Paraguay, where he grew up, he feels prepared for what's to come. While not the coldest fall these students have experienced, there are still some difficult aspects of fall in Evanston. For one, it forces students to ask themselves whether fashion or warmth are the most important to them. The consensus is the heaviest winter jackets shouldn't be worn until much later in the fall. Another student, Alex, who spent a lot of time in Canada before coming to NU, is still waiting for the right time or temperature. <laughs> I think the weather in Chicago is not that cold. What? It's, not, it's pretty normal. What? He told me that he was put on his jacket. Mm. He told me that he wouldn't put on his jacket until... When it gets to like minus 10. Many students will likely put on their winter coats before it gets much colder. Though the students who hail from cold weather environments will certainly have a leg up. Eric Dare, native to Illinois, is completely unfazed by the changing temps so far. Dressed in slides and a t-shirt, the Weinberg freshman, Dare, explained how the weather is not what he had expected for this time of year. It's okay. It's actually, it's warmer than I thought it would be. Because usually it snows like the week before or the week of Halloween. Mm-hmm. And honestly, it was like 70 degrees that one day, and I was really surprised. Um, yeah, so I, I was kind of surprised how warm it is actually right now. Braving the wind in a costume can be tough, but on regular days, there are many ways to make the fall a little bit more bearable. One freshman, Yulia, gave some advice that she thinks all students should keep in mind. Layering helps. She went on to explain her thought process about the colder weather. I think it's better than I expected it to be. A lot of people told me that Chicago and Chicago area weather would be horrible. But mm. I think it's okay-ish. Um, today is not good, though. With snow in the forecast this week, only time will tell how well students will continue to adjust to the weather so close to the Windy City. For WNUR News, I'm Rachel Spears. It's been a busy week in the world of pop culture, but have no fear. The B-List is here to guide you through. Laura Choi has more. Welcome to the B-List, your weekly roundup of celebrity mess and pop culture. This week, a pop princess memoir, a global film festival, a Sofia Coppola film, and an October baseball showdown. In Celebrity, actor Matthew Perry died on Saturday at the age of 54. Best known for playing Chandler Bing on Friends, Perry appeared in a range of roles in theater and television, including The West Wing and The Good Wife. Just last year, his memoir recounting his rise and struggles with fame attracted significant media attention. Another headline-generating memoir was released this week, as Britney Spears' The Woman in Me climbs the bestseller list. The book explores her relationships with stardom, Justin Timberlake, and the Spears family. Britney herself has described it as part of her quote-unquote healing process, following the end of her 13-year conservatorship in 2021. In movies, the 59th edition of the Chicago International Film Festival came to a close this week, after screening 46 films for competition. The Golden Hugo for Best International Feature Film went to Explanation for Everything, a Hungarian-Slovakian coming-of-age story. I, for one, will be trying to get my hands on one of this year's Film Fest posters. Speaking of another buzzy film festival premiere, Sofia Coppola's Priscilla will get its wide release this weekend. The film will feature amazing 60s music and fashion, not to mention Kaylee Spaney as the titular Priscilla Presley and Jacob Elordi as her rock star husband. 
expect to see many comparisons between Alordi and Austin Butler in last year's Elvis. In sports, the Arizona Diamondbacks face the Texas Rangers in the World Series. The best of seven showdown is currently tied at 1-1 with Game 3 set for 7.03 p.m. Central tonight. No matter who wins, this series is sure to thrill two long-suffering fan bases. That's all for today's edition of The B-List. Check in next Monday to hear about what happens this week in pop culture. For WNUR News, I'm Laura Choi. A look at the weather for tonight. Winter is officially on its way. Temperatures are dropping to a low of 29 degrees tonight and will potentially rise only to a high of 38 tomorrow. Tomorrow was also set to bring the first snowfall of the season around 5 p.m. Make sure to get out that winter gear. Taking a look into the headlines. Northwestern football took down the University of Maryland's Terrapins in Saturday in a 33-27 victory. Despite a 14-14 tie at the beginning of the game, the Cats were able to secure a lead by the half. This is the team's fourth win of the season, making their record four wins and four losses. A large buck, yep, a male deer, ran into a noodles and company in Beloit, Wisconsin during its lunch rush. Luckily, no one, including the buck, was injured, but dozens of customers fled the scene in horror. The restaurant is offering a two-buck mac and cheese special in store on Wednesday due to this event. The iconic 1980s and 90s band New Kids on the Block announced their upcoming reunion tour, which will include a stop in the Chicago area. The tour is titled the Magic Summer 2024 Tour and will make stops in 40 cities across America. The tour is set to begin on June 14, 2024 in Cuyahoga Falls, Ohio and will end on August 25th in Noblesville, Indiana. On Saturday, Matthew Perry, beloved star of the hit TV show Friends, passed away in his L.A. home. Authorities arrived at the scene to find that he was unresponsive in his hot tub. According to local law enforcement, at this time, the cause of death is unknown. He was 54. That's all for WNUR News at 6 p.m. For more news updates and reports, follow us on Twitter or X at WNUR News. You can listen to these and other WNUR news stories on our website, WNURnews.org. That's WNURnews.org. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Our producers today are Cara Totley and Brandon Condritz, and our reporters are Michelle Huang, Alyssa Rubin, and Rachel Spears. From all of us here at WNUR News, thanks for listening. I'm Jessica Watts. Catch our next newscast on Wednesday, November 1st at 6 p.m. Now, back to scheduled programming.